right, well, let's uh, show our appreciation for our children's ministry workers. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Genesis 1.26. That's on page one in the church Bibles and probably page one on most Bibles. This morning, we are continuing to lay the foundation in our series on biblical anthropology. We cannot live well or wisely in the world unless we know who God is, who we are, and how God has saved us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's basically what the Bible is about. And uh, so for the next several weeks and months, we're actually going to be looking at the middle part of that equation. We're going to be looking at who we are, who God says we are. We want to understand who we are in relation to God who we are in relation to each other, and who we are in relation to the world. Last week, we started at the very beginning, literally the very beginning. We talked about the fact that we are humans created by God. And what are the implications of that? What what does it mean to be a person, to be an exalted creature? But to be a creature, that's who we are. We're humans, yes, but humans created by God. And, and so what that means is that we are special, but we are secondary. In the beginning, God. So human beings are not the highest point of reference in the universe. We, we are put within a space. We are put into a particular reality. We are subject to a higher authority. Understanding that is actually the beginning of it all. And so this week, we're kind of expanding on that foundation. We're talking about the fact that we are humans created by God, but we're created in a particular way. We are, the Bible says, created in the image and likeness of God. What in the world does that mean? And not only what does that mean, but what happened to our exalted status and dignity and these capacities? What happened to the image and likeness of God in us when we fell into sin? Who are we now on the other side of Eden? And of course, the third question we need to ask is, what happens to the image and likeness of God in us when we are saved? These are hugely important questions. It's hard to think Christianly about anything until you have thought about these things. So we're going to try and work through these various questions as we reflect upon this foundational text. So hopefully you have your Bible open by now to Genesis chapter 1, I'll begin reading at verse 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, the first question we need to ask as we reflect upon this text is this. What does it mean to be image and likeness of God? The Hebrew words that are used there that are translated into English as image and likeness are the Hebrew words tselem and demuth. And they're used all the time in the Bible. They're frequently used words. Uh, But when they're used in the Bible, they typically in the Old Testament refer either to idols or statues. So just pause for a second and think about that. Uh, If you were reading this in Hebrew, if you were one of the original hearers of this, you you would hear the text saying, that human beings have been created as, as idols or statues. See, see, an idol is in some way supposed to look like and represent the God that, that people pray to. Uh, and a statue serves the same function. A statue might be set up to represent a particular God or to represent a particular king. So do you remember that story you probably learned in Sunday school or on VeggieTales, wherever it is you picked up your, you know, your foundational Christian truths? Remember the story of when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar made a giant statue of himself? Okay, well, the Hebrew word used there is the same word used here. That statue was supposed to resemble Nebuchadnezzar. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had, had seen this great dream about this great statue that had a head of gold and a chest of silver and all that, and he was told, you're the head of gold. And so he responded to that, not, not in a great way, and uh, he, he, in a later story, we're told he makes a great statue. And everybody was supposed to bow down to it. And uh, that word that is used there is the same word that is used here. So it's the same for us in some, in some special way. It's not an exact parallel. I'm not saying that human beings are idols and we should all. No, no. But we need to understand that this is, this is the terminology. This is religious terminology used to describe human beings. So in some special way, in some special way that we need to think about, human beings resemble God and represent God in creation. Now, of course, there are some things that can't mean. So you shouldn't be sitting there and going, well, maybe God has, you know, ten fingers and ten toes, just like me. Maybe God has a little bit of hair growing in his ear right now, just like me. No, 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 no. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. So we're not speaking in a, in a crassly, you know, physical sense. It's, we're not saying that. Can't mean that. But there are a number of things the Bible seems to indicate that it does mean, and we want to talk about those things. First of all, I think we can safely say that to speak of human beings as the image and likeness of God refers to the fact that we are spiritually and morally sensitive. Now, on this, this is the one that pretty much everybody agrees on. I, I certainly didn't find any commentaries or, or theologians that would disagree here. Uh, there are some fine points about what it means to be image and likeness of God that some theologians will disagree on, but we're all on the same page here. The thing we can say beyond any doubt is, is that what is unique about human beings to be image and likeness of God refers to our spiritual and moral sensitivities. Alan P. Ross is so helpful here. He says, humans have spiritual life, ethical and moral sensitivities, conscience, and the capacity to represent God. Isn't that beautiful? Human beings have the capacity 
to tune in to spiritual realities. Human beings have the capacity to behold God and, and to reflect upon the extent to which the world looks the way it should relative to the character of God. You understand that squirrels are not doing that. Squirrels are not, are not looking at their store of nuts going, how come I didn't get as many nuts as the squirrel over there? How come, how come the squirrel over there just got run over by a truck? Uh, and and how, how come the, the tree over there in that neighborhood is so much better than my tree? Does God not like me? What's happening? Why is the world? The, no, squirrel's not thinking any of those thoughts. But as human beings, we are. We are looking, we're constantly looking at God, looking at ourselves, looking at the world, and feeling any dissonance, aren't we? As a human being, do you ever look around and think, why does that person have more than I have? Why have I had such a hard go? Or, because again, you're, you're morally sensitive, do you ever look at other people and say, why is that person having such a hard time? Why is that person treating that person so terribly? Why does this system over here seem to crush human beings and chew them up and spit them out? That's not right. Who says that's not right? Why is that not right? You're the only creatures in the universe capable of answering that question because you're the only creatures in the universe capable of looking at God and having thoughts about how the world should be. That is what makes you you. That is what makes you distinctly human. You have this capacity to behold God and to reflect God. We see that in the scriptures, Old Testament and New. God saying to human beings, be holy for I am holy. He doesn't say that to squirrels. But he says to human beings, look at me and be like me. That is, again, that is the unique capacity of human beings. Secondly, we are image and likeness of God. To speak of human beings as image and likeness of God is to refer to the fact that we are inherently social. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So according to the Bible, being male and female is part of how we image God. Now let me unpack that. I'm not saying that God is male and female. Again, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. God does not have gender. Now you say, well, wait a second. We speak about God as father all the time. Yes, because that's a metaphor. We're saying that God is like a good dad. That's a, that's a metaphor, though. God does not have gender because God does not have a body. So what do we mean when we say that to be male and female is in some way to resemble God? What we're saying is that God is clearly revealed in Scripture, even in this particular passage we've just read, as existing in some kind of plurality and as enjoying some kind of internal fellowship. So listen again to the verse that comes right before verse 27. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, of course, this is page one of the Bible. 
So we, we don't get a full theology of the Trinity on page one of the Bible. This is one of those doctrines that kind of keeps getting fleshed out the more you read the Bible. But, but right here, we get this sense that there is inner dialogue in God. There is, there is fellowship within the Godhead. And so what I'm saying here is that human beings reflect that aspect of God. We, we were created to have intimate dialogue. We were created to have intimate fellowship. We are essentially relational creatures. It's very important for us to understand that. And we are fully orbed relational creatures. You know, you, you might say, well, you know, there's lots of animals that are relational too. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But not to the same level of complexity, not in the same fully orbed sense that we are. We have lateral input ports and we also have vertical input ports, which means you were created to have fellowship with God and to be changed by that, and you were created to have fellowship with other human beings and to develop and change as a result of that. That is part of what it means to be uniquely human. Now, you might be sitting here and saying, well, wait a second, I'm not married, I'm a single person. We're gonna, this is foundational, as I said. This, last week and this week are foundational, and then we'll start really diving into some of the specifics and the implications here. Uh, to be clear, in the Bible, when we're going we're gonna to have a, a sermon on marriage, we're gonna, and we're also going to talk about singleness, but I want to be very clear. No one is called to aloneness. That's not a thing. In the, Bible, in the New Testament, it does talk about an exception to the general rule that people should marry. It talks about people who have the gift of celibacy, which is the, the ability to live happy and self-controlled as a single person, usually for purposes of ministry. So we'll talk about that, but I want to be clear. Even people with the gift of celibacy are not called to aloneness. There's no human being ever created who is called to aloneness. It is not good for a man to be alone. It's not good for a woman to be alone. You were created as an essentially social creature, and we need to understand that. You have these ports, and you are influenced. You're an open system, and you're influenced by the people that you connect with. And again, we have to understand this to live well and wisely in the world. This is why the Apostle Paul says, do not be deceived, meaning we, we tend to forget this. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Human beings are not isolated entities. We're not closed systems. We are constantly plugged in. And therefore, we are always changing in one direction or another. And this is why prophets and leaders in the Bible uh, are, take, take the issue of mixed marriage so seriously. Uh, if you're doing the RMM Bible reading plan, I know it looks like, it seems like from the survey, about 60% of our members are doing that. And if, so if you're doing the Robert Murray McShane, the RMM Bible reading plan, last week there was a really disturbing passage. When I say disturbing, I don't mean that it was wrong. I just mean it kind of hits you like a truck. You just think, this is, this is like a passage from another world. It's the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13. So he was the governor of Israel in a time when they were trying to rebuild the community after the exile. And uh, he comes across a bunch of Jewish men who have married unbelieving non-Jewish women, and he literally loses his mind. This is what it says. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. 
And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourself. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? That's not a story you expect to encounter in the Bible, is it? You know, this, is, this one doesn't get illustrated in the children's Bible. You got Nehemiah, the government's governor, smacking people, pulling hair, and then like holding people down while they pray and promise not to sin anymore. And I'm not sure that's appropriate. We did not meditate on this passage at last weekend's board retreat, we didn't, or this weekend's board retreat. We did not do that. This seems so odd, but why were they so concerned? They were so concerned because they'd learned from their own history that if you, if you let the wrong people whisper into your lateral ports, then you're going to stop believing. See, they had learned this very, very, very important truth, that who you love is eventually what you believe. And I will tell you this, if you don't understand that, you are heading for disaster. Who you love is eventually what you believe. We need to be aware that we are constantly changing through these relational ports. So you got to be very careful who you let speak into these ports. So, for example, if, again, if you're doing the RMM Bible reading plan, already twice in Genesis, we have bumped into this truth that if you let your wife, who's a, this is a good relationship, but if you let your wife speak into your God port, bad things happen. Twice already in Genesis, a man is told, because you listen to the voice of your wife, this is going to happen. And you're like, wait a second, is the Bible saying we shouldn't listen to our wives? No, no, no. The Bible's saying you should listen to your wives through these ports, your lateral ports. But the moment you start letting your wife be the voice of God in your life, you're headed for trouble. That's what an idol is. An idol is a good thing you treat like a God thing. Is it good to listen to your spouse? Yes. Yeah, feel free after today's sermon to go home and tell your spouse. He should be listening to you more than he is. That's fine. That's a legit application. But, but, don't, but don't tell your spouse that he should treat your voice or, or she should treat your voice, whichever way this goes in your marriage as the voice of God. You should never let another human being tell you what is right and wrong, tell you what is true and false. That's something you should only hear from God. Amen? And it's not just our wives. Sometimes we let the government, sometimes we let the culture whisper in. In fact, I would say often, all the time maybe, we let the culture whisper into our God port. What the Bible's saying is just you need to understand there, there are tubes that lead down to your heart. One, one's up here, one's a vertical tube, you got lateral tubes. And so if you want to guard your heart, like the Bible says, then you got to guard your tubes. You've got to be very aware of this relational dynamic. That's just reality. You cannot live wisely in the world as a human being. This is part of your design. You cannot live well and wisely in the world if you're not aware of that. All right, thirdly, we are image and likeness of God in the sense that we are able to create and multiply Right after human beings are called image and likeness of God, the text goes on to say, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Derek Kidner is great here. He says, commenting on this verse, to bless is to bestow not only a gift but a function and to do so with warm 
concern. Isn't that good? Kidner is saying that God gave us the gift of being able to create, to make human beings. And not just the ability, but also the commission to do so. And all with warm concern. Brothers and sisters, it's a good thing to know that God has a warm concern for everything related to the trials and joys of raising children. Moms out there, God has a warm concern for you as a mother. He he wants you to know that what you're giving your life to is a good and noble task. The culture, remember the culture wants to whisper into your God tube? The culture will say, no, 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 you only have worth when you do things out there. You need to go out there and do things in order to be worthy. And God whispers and says, no, 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 no. When you're doing this, you're doing what I made you to do, and it is a worthy and wonderful thing. Bless you. You need to know that all your prayers about the pains and sorrows of motherhood will receive a warm reception from God. And moms-to-be, moms who want to be moms, God has a warm concern for you as well. He knows how hard it is to bring little ones into this broken world. He knows that our bodies are groaning, sharing in the brokenness of the world. And his ear is open to your prayers as well. Parents in general, God has a warm concern for all the difficulties associated with this wonderful task. He knows how hard it is to buy a home right now. He knows how hard it is to survive on a single income. Do you know how many young families I hear right now saying, with the price of housing in Canada, not only do I not know if I'll ever be able to own a home, I don't know if if I'll ever be able to stay home with my child. You know, the funny thing is, when, when when my wife and I got married, it felt like the culture was kind of divided on the whole, is it a good thing for mom to stay home with the kids? I mean, obviously that conversation wasn't really a big conversation when I was a child. Uh, I think, I can't remember if any of my friends had, had moms who didn't stay home with the kids. I mean, many of them had careers and, and then went back to careers. Like my mom was a teacher before uh, she had kids and stuff. So that was all very common. But generally speaking, when I was a kid, Almost all moms stayed home. But then when Shanalee and I got married, it was a live conversation. Is it a good thing or are you letting down the team? How's this going to go, right? And we kind of had the option. It was always hard for mom to stay home. Usually, you know, Shanalee would always do a little something. She did data entry from home or in-home daycare, a little something. But by and large, she was with our kids. And, and then I felt like for the first part of my ministry, I was arguing that that was a legitimate choice because the culture had turned against that and was saying that's not a good choice. You shouldn't be doing that. That's not right. But you know, it's funny now. When I talk to young people, I don't feel like I'm having that argument anymore. What they're saying, you know what they say to me now? When I talk to 26-year-olds now, you know what they say? They say, Pastor, I would love to stay home with my kids. I just don't see how I ever could. I don't have a solution for you. I'd love to give you all 100 grand and say, Here, here's a down payment on a house. I don't have a solution. I'm just saying, I want you to know that God has a warm concern for how hard it is right now to be parents. And I will say this too. My generation and older, I want to encourage you to have a warm concern for those who are starting out because it is harder for them than it is for you, than it was for you. And so we can't just do the, wow, you know, in my day, we walked to school, you know, in the snow with our shoes. Shh. 
you, you need to hear. It's, I'm not saying it can't be done, and I'm not because it's still probably easier for them than it was for our great grandparents. So I'm not saying, but it is harder. And you know what? It's it's hard for it to be harder after it's been easy for three consecutive generations. So have some mercy, and maybe don't share all your barefoot in the snow stories. <laughs> have a have a warm concern, like our heavenly Father. This is something God cares about. Fourthly, following on from that, we're image and likeness of God in the sense that we exercise authority. Look at verse 28 again. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as image and likeness of God, human beings are told to subdue and have dominion. Now it's interesting. The word subdue didn't trigger me, but somebody just this past week, a brother, a Christian brother, said that he didn't like the word subdue. And he, he was not wrong for saying that. I'm not criticizing it. I just thought it was interesting. He, he said because it, it stirs up connotations of, like, bringing things under your thumb. And that's true. I guess sometimes when we use the word subdue, we're talking about bringing people under our authority who don't want to be there. So that's bad. Uh, the word subdue just means to bring under management. And obviously there are some things you shouldn't, like if I go out into the parking lot and hit you with a stick until you agree to, uh, you know, wipe the snow off my car, that's bad subduing. Don't do that. But there are things out there in, in creation that were supposed to be brought under management. They were created waiting to be brought under management. I, I, I'm reminded of this truth every time I look at the two little dogs who live in our home. Those dogs were not created to exist in nature. Uh, they spend all their time lying in front of the fireplace, licking each other. It's a gong show. Uh, I have no idea how those creatures could survive in the jungle. Like if we hadn't subdued them, they'd be somebody's snack. Uh, they could be overpowered by butterflies. Like, so there are all kinds of things in the created realm that were created to be subdued. In the zoomed-in version of the creation account, which we get in Genesis 2, this is expanded upon. God puts the man and the woman in the garden, and he tells them, or he tells the, the man uh, at, at this part of the story that uh, he's doing it, and then the woman joins him. But the command is to work it and keep it. So theologians often refer to this as the cultural mandate. There's this idea that God has filled the world with raw materials, but it is, it's kind of wild out there. And our job is to impose order and actually to improve upon it. This is very important because this is actually not the cultural narrative. The current cultural narrative is that human beings are a plague upon the earth. And in fact, if you want to do the earth a favor, you know, go home and start your car and close the garage door, right? Like that's, and you think, well, that's extreme. No, no, that's actually pretty par for the course in some environmental discourse. Like there's a view that there's, the problem is there's too many humans and, and we're bad for the earth. Just so you know, that's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. Like, what are you just reading? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. That's a totally different story than you're getting outside. And by the way, that your kids are getting in school. And so we have this kind of notion that the only good way for humans to be in the world is kind of like traceless campers, like wander through the wild, but don't leave a footprint carry everything behind you, don't dig anything, don't touch anything, because the world is good and you are bad. But just to be clear, that's not the vision of the Bible. The Bible says it's a good thing 
when human beings combine metals and make an alloy. Anybody drive here in a car with steel in it? Bible says it's a good thing when you divert a river to create a fertile plain. Bible says it's a good thing when, when, when you clear a field of trees and, and plant in rows so that you can multiply the food production of the earth and feed many people. Those are good things. Now, can those things be done in a sinful way? Well, of course. We do everything in a sinful way, don't we? But in and of themselves, those things are good. Did anybody take medicine this morning? Isn't it nice that we can take compounds found in the earth, combine them in a very particular way, and bring blessing to human beings? Isn't that a, that's the cultural mandate. It's a good thing. It's just something that makes us uniquely human. That's what it means to subdue, to bring the world under management, to impose order, beauty. The word dominion, of course, means a sphere of authority. We're to subdue and we're to exercise dominion. Human beings were created to be under God and over everything else. So we're vice regents, which means that our authority is not absolute. Everything we do and everything we decide has to be done in reference to the Word of God. And our authority also exists within certain relationships. But it is real and it is extensive. In fact, it's far more extensive than it appears to us today because we live in a time when our authority and our capacity to exercise authority is greatly diminished. But With respect to our created state, our authority is extensive. It extends to everything else that God created. In 1 Corinthians 6.3, Paul says that this extends even to the angels. He says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? And why wouldn't we? Angels are created things, and human beings are supposed to rule over all created things, even angels. And we will. When we are restored, when we are healed when we are who we were supposed to be again, we will rule over even the angels. We'll rule with Christ. The Bible says that. 2 Timothy 2.12, it says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. When creation is renewed, after humans have been healed and restored, we will be ruling and reigning with Christ over a variety of exalted creatures up to and including angels. That's what it means to be image and likeness of God, which, of course, raises the question, what happened to the image and likeness of God when we fell? As we've just talked about, and as we all know, we are not now the people that we were created and intended to be. We were created to rule over angels, but obviously we're not doing that right now. There are all manner of things that we were created to do that we are currently unable to do as a result of our fallen condition. The picture at the end of Genesis 3, and we're going to get to Genesis 3 as well. Again, we're laying the foundation. We're going to talk about Genesis 3. We're going to see that, but that's the story of the fall. At the end of that picture, we receive a pretty stark representation. Genesis 3.24 says, He, that's God, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's a vivid way of describing the current state of human beings. We are away from God, and we no longer have access to the resources we need to be the people that God created and intended us to be, which raises the question, have we lost the image and likeness of God, now that we're fallen creatures? Thankfully, the answer to that question appears to be no. 
So if you have your Bible open to Genesis 1, just flip a few pages to Genesis 9. Genesis 9, 6. To state the obvious, if the fall is told, if the story of the fall is told in Genesis 3, and you're flipping all the way to Genesis 9, this is a story about something after the fall, after the flood, even. God says to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. What's the reason? For God made man in his own image. Anthony Hokema draws out the significance of this verse, saying, the reason that murder is here said to be such a heinous crime, that it must be punished by death, is that the man who has been murdered is someone who imaged God, reflected God, was like God, and represented God. To touch the image of God is to touch God himself. To kill the image of God is to do violence to God himself. So human beings are still creatures of enormous dignity and worth even after the fall. So even the worst human being in the world is still the image and likeness of God. Therefore, the death of a tyrant or a dictator or a murderer, though it may be necessary, as Genesis 9, 6 has just indicated, it should never be celebrated And it should only be undertaken through careful, considered, and collective action. That is what is being authorized in Genesis 9-6. The death of a human being is a sacred thing. And so this is why we need to be horrified by the uh, expansion of medical assistance in dying in Canada. If you've been following this, there is discussion of extending medical assistance in dying to the mentally ill and even to the homeless in Canada. It's, it's unbelievable. In the National Post, uh, there was an article in May of 2023 that said one-third of Canadians are fine with prescribing assisted suicide for homelessness. How, like, that should knock you down. How in the world did we get to this place where one-third of your friends and neighbors think it would be okay if we gassed homeless people? Like, how is this a thing in our culture? We've come to the place where we have bought into the lie that the value of a human being is related to their capacity and production. By the way, that's not unrelated to the tension young women are feeling right now. Why is it that young women feel like if they stay home to raise children, they will have less value? If you pull on that, you get this same root. Because we live in a culture that says you accumulate value through capacity and production. If that doesn't terrify you as a senior citizen, for example, you are not connecting the dots. So what does that mean? What does that mean if you have a stroke? What, is, what does that mean if you're in a wheelchair? What does that mean if, if, if you're a Down syndrome baby in the womb? Like, we need to be saying a loud no on these issues. As, as Christians, we need to be saying a loud no to medical assistance in dying, and we need to be saying a loud no to abortion. 
Because we are image and likeness of God. And the moment a person's value and dignity and worth is not connected to their identity, but is rather connected to their capacity, we know where this road leads. You ever heard the expression used probably by your grandparents, life unworthy of life? We fought a world war over that. That's where this road leads. There is no such thing as human life unworthy of human life. We are image and likeness of God. Even after the fall, we are image and likeness of God. But that is not to say that we were unaffected by the fall. Far from it. The fall has changed us in significant ways. We no longer resemble and represent God the way we originally did. We are cracked mirrors now. John Calvin puts it very well. He says, although we grant that the image of God was not utterly effaced and destroyed by him, it was, however, so corrupted that anything which remains is fearful deformity. Those are good guardrails for us in our discussion. We are not utterly effaced, but we have been fearfully deformed. That's good. Last week, we used the analogy of solar panels. We said that human beings are like cars that have a giant solar panel on them. Again, if we apply Calvin's guardrails here, what we're saying is that our solar panels have been covered with mud. They're not entirely effaced, but they have been covered in an awful lot of mud. Some light is still getting through, but not very much. Our solar panel is also fearfully deformed. It is badly bent. It is out of alignment. It is cracked. That's who we are as human beings. So we still hear from God, but not very well. Now we, we hear from God. Like, did you ever play that game when you were a kid where you went under the water at a pool or a lake and you tried to pass messages to each other? That's the human condition. We still hear from God, but it's like we're hearing underwater or through the mud. And we still receive grace but not as much as we need to and not as much as we were designed to because we're so far out of alignment. That's us on the other side of the fall. And you will never understand human beings if you do not wrestle with this dynamic. G.C. Burkauer in his book on the image of God provides a bit of a wake-up call for people in our generation who put too much trust in science. He says this, the sciences which deal with certain aspects of man can make no more than a partial contribution to our understanding of man and cannot unveil the secret of the whole man. Leave that quote up for, for, for just a moment if you can. It is so important for us to, to understand this. And I think that's actually a very moderate and temperate statement because I think Christians often end up in the ditch on either side of this. We say, well, I mean, since science can't address the root issue, therefore I don't care about science. I'm anti-science. That's not helpful. And, and if you want to minister to people, you need to take account for the fact that they are bodies and souls. Human beings are embodied souls. We're going to have a whole message on that. But that means that sometimes what's happening in your body affects your soul. And what's happening in your soul affects your body. So bodies matter. If you've got seasonal affective disorder, you can pray all you like, but you've still got seasonal affective disorder, and you need to go outside and walk in the sun. Our, our bodies matter, and science can tell us some things about that, but they, they can never solve the whole issue because science, by and large, cannot and does not address the fundamental issue, which is the connection between human beings and God. 
So therapists and psychiatrists who, who do not attend to these realities, who are not believers and do not attend to these realities, they're, they're like a mechanic trying to figure out what's gone wrong with that, you know, uh, with that electric car on the side of the road. And they come by and, and they check the tire pressure and they, they check the windshield washer fluid. They turn on the radio. Radio's working fine. Turn on the nav system. Nav system works fine. Listen, all that stuff is important, but it doesn't address the fundamental reality. And the fundamental reality is if an electric car is not connected to its power source, it is just a giant paperweight on the side of the road. That's the issue. That's the issue. So we need to address the fundamental issue. Otherwise, we're just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And the fundamental issue is the connection between human beings and their creator. So very quickly, because again, we're going to come back to all this in greater detail, but we need to ask one more question. What happens to the image of God in us when we're saved? By the way, we're going to be asking these kinds of questions about every issue we're going to talk about. I mentioned we're going to talk about gender next week. So there's like, okay, what's gender in the, in the created state? How did the fall affect gender? What happens to gender after we're saved? This is the grid you have to think of given who we are and given what we've been through as human beings. But let's just lay in the foundation. What happens to human nature? What happens to the image of God in us when we're saved. That's what we need to know. Paul talks about that in Colossians 3, 9 to 10. Speaking to new believers, and he says, you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So according to the Bible, when we come to Christ, we begin a process of renewal. And, and not just renewal in whatever direction appeals to us. It is specifically renewal in the direction of the image of our creator. Thomas Boston puts it this way, referring to the redeemed state of human beings as the state of begun recovery of human nature. Isn't that good? Highlight that phrase or write that phrase down. The state of begun recovery. That's what it means to be saved. You have begun a process of recovery. So think of it this way. Ever since Genesis 3, human beings have been falling away from God. So imagine that we are chained to a heavy anchor, and that anchor has been cast into a bottomless sea. We are being dragged down, down, down to the depths, away from God, away from our former dignity. We're going down. But when we come to Christ, the chain is cut. Remember we used to sing about this? My chains are gone, I've been set free. Remember, oh, four thousand tongues? He breaks the power of canceled sin. This is what we're talking about. When you're saved, the chain is cut and you stop falling away. And you can now begin a process of growth and recovery. That is what it means to be saved. Listen again to these words you have heard here so many times, but now listen to them through the lens of all we've just talked about. Paul says in 2 Corinthians three seventeen to 18, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Your chains are cut. The anchor is gone. You're no longer falling away. You're free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. 
And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Can you visualize that? Can can you see the person who was three miles down in the sea whose anchor has been cut? Can you see them slowly rising? By one degree of glory to the next? For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit in you is like a balloon. You're a couple miles underneath the water, and all of a sudden you swallow a balloon, and you're going to begin to rise. Up, 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 by one degree of glory to the next. What's making that happen? This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When we come to Christ, this is what's going on. The, the mud is wiped off the panel. Choose your preferred metaphor. Paul says, with unveiled face. The, the mud is wiped off. We begin to see again. And we come back to life. Like an appliance that you thought was broken, but all you needed to do was fix the fuse. All of a sudden, the, the digital display is back on. The thing comes back to life. We come back to life when the mud is wiped off, when we begin to see, and when we're filled with the Spirit, we begin to rise. That's the story. By one degree of glory to the next, into the same image, the image of our Creator, gloriously and perfectly displayed in the person of Jesus Christ and imprinted on our nature through the internal ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these glorious truths. We pray they would make us wise unto salvation and wise also as we remain in this world. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.